Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Serverless Sorcery. I'm your host, Rinaldi, and today we've got a treat for all you serverless enthusiasts out there. We're diving into the magic and mysteries of generative AI and serverless architectures, and this week on how it is used for tailoring the doctor-patient experience and providing better therapy adherence through empathy. We have a pioneer in the field today, Luca, to talk to us about this. Luca is the CTO and R&D manager at New Experience and New Experience Health and an AWS Serverless hero. So without further ado, let's get started and revel the enchantment within her, behind Serverless. Luca, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and share a bit of experience. That's great to hear, Luca. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. It's a quite cold winter approaching here in Italy, but that's fine. That's fair. We're actually just entering summer about now, so that's a bit of a polar opposite right now, but uh, it's uh, settling soon. We're getting a bit of like uh, rainy days as well, but weather's like... You are luckier than me because you are approaching summer. We are approaching winters. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. We had a pretty bad winter here over here. We, we have a great theme today to talk about, Luca, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about what, what we're going to talk about today about, yeah, what you're doing in the field and... Yeah, like uh, to get us started off with, do you want to talk a bit about like, what you're currently working on and uh, like what what topic we're going to talk about? Yeah, uh, we are uh, we are working on uh, health. We are working into applying AI uh, to to the health domain and also working uh, how figuring out how service technologies can provide an additional value, so additional benefits for developers when you're doing AI, especially using LLMs. Right. And for that, what particular LFMs have you played around with? And what, what particular use cases have you gotten out of using the FMs? Like, have you been using, uh, I know you've been using Amazon Bedrock, for example, but like any particular use cases you've got out of that so far yet? Yeah. Uh, especially we aimed to change the way uh, doctor and patients are communicating. And it is something where I think that an LLM could be really helpful uh, because one of the main problems that uh, you can face when you talk to a doctor is uh, some kind of lack of knowledge that a patient says uh, every time that uh, has to process medical information. So medical information are just merely facts. So when you have a medical text, uh, it is a fact. It says that your platelet count is blah, 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 or that your cholesterol is uh, of some kind uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but when you go to the doctor, uh, you ask the doctor to explain that fact. So you ask to the doctor, basically, uh, if you see that, if you look at, the, at a marketing purpose, uh, you ask to the doctor to put the storytelling on that fact. So uh, basically, one of the most underrated uh, capabilities of a good doctor is to be able to explain clearly. So to, to tell a good storytelling to their patient to make them understand correctly what's happening. Because sometimes you can have irrelevant facts. So say uh, your cholesterol is just slightly high. Uh, some other times you can have some very relevant facts that require you to uh, take further uh, deep divings into your uh, clinical text or maybe to adhere to a therapy. 
and uh, the way uh, how doctor communicates uh, to patients can change dramatically the adherence to therapy. So you can uh, uh, underestimate, uh, undervalue uh, what the doctor is telling you, because basically uh, the doctor is uh, using the wrong words, the wrong words. So basically it's not uh, stressing enough uh, uh, the importance, the relevance of a given therapy, or maybe you can be frightened because uh, maybe a doctor uh, just tells you all the bad outcomes that uh, your, your schedule uh, procedure or your therapy or the lack of therapy could lead to you, but maybe your uh, situation is not so bad. Just let me give you an example. Think about uh, a biopsy result for every patient. When you read a biopsy uh, result, you can say, uh, okay, there is some kind of uh, uh, cellular level which uh, uh, significantly phlogosis or maybe blah, 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 blah. And it is completely uh, obscure to anyone. Uh, which is not a doctor. And you go to the doctor and the doctor tries to explain that to you. But unfortunately, the problem uh, that we are facing in Europe, but it is, I, I know that it's something which is uh, uh, quite uh, uh, diffused worldwide. So this is a problem that we are facing uh, pretty much everywhere, is that uh, in this after pandemics world, doctors tend to have, uh, to don't have too much time uh, to deal with these results. The, the, they are overwhelmed uh, by, uh, the, by screening, they are overwhelmed by uh, people needing, the, for, needing for medical care, uh, so it is uh, very difficult for doctors to find the right time, to find the right amount of time to deal with patients. And on the other side, uh, it is also something that uh, could not be uh, related to the way a doctor is trained. So you train doctors into becoming uh, good medicians, into becoming good professionals, into being able to do surgery, into being able to uh, find uh, issues and find the medication and find solutions to patients. Uh, but uh, very often doctors are not trained enough into talking to patients, into using the right tone of voice, and also into changing the words that they are using, uh, respect to the person that, they, that there is in front of them. So if you are talking to, say, a 20 years old medicine attendant, you can use some kind of wordings. If you're talking to a 70-year-old uh, man uh, coming from the islands, uh, you, you need to use different, a different wording, a different tone of voice uh, to achieve the same results. We find out that LLMs, that foundational models, are pretty good into uh, modulating, into changing, into adapting uh, the wording. And we push them even farther because we discovered that they are really good into understanding the medical results, understanding, uh, even in the biopsy example, into understanding the meanings, the terms of the biopsy, and then rearranging them into uh, 
tone of voice uh, into a uh, speech uh, that could be easily understood by people. So our idea was why not use these tools uh, to suggest the doctor the right information at the right time for the patients. Because otherwise, uh, a patient is going to uh, Google that result and to find out a lot of stuff that uh, he or she cannot process. And uh, it, could be, uh, it could be harmful uh, for everyone. It could be harmful for them. It could increase the level of stress. So basically, this is the idea of uh, New Experience Health when we say we are putting empathy in healthcare because empathy is what makes people, it's what drives people into having a good relation with their doctor, into following, following their doctor advice, and uh, it prevents also the, doc also the doctors uh, from burnout. Uh, a, a close friend of mine who is a doctor told me once, uh, you start studying medicine because you uh, want to save lives of people, and then you end your career that you hate everyone, especially patients. And it is due to the fact that uh, doctors need to focus on a lot of stuff that is not related uh, to saving lives, is not related to, uh, to dealing with patients. And it takes doctors to burn out. And when a doctor is undergoing burnout, uh, it is underperforming, and one of the most difficult thing to achieve is to talk to patients because he doesn't want to talk to patients, he only wants to deal with them. And uh, here is where LLM, foundational models, can be helpful. But we need a bit more on that. So we will discuss uh, shortly. Uh, just LLMs is uh, not enough. Uh, we need to uh, put some kind of architectures in place in order to address these, uh, these goals because we need a way to store the previous information, a way to allow doctors to uh, check if the generated result is enough or not, a way to read PDFs and so on and so forth. Definitely. That's a really great case, you, you, Luca, what you've just said. And I'm already used as well to going to hospitals and often have time finding the right stuff to read to. So that's a really great thing that you're building towards. And as you mentioned as well, I do feel that it's a great way to prevent doctors from making errors as well, because there is always the tendency when doctors are more tired to make lapses in judgment for decisions that they provide or explanations that they provide to patients. So I think you've touched on a really great point there. So moving on to what you were mentioning as well about the architectures, I'd like to touch on that point. Can you talk a bit more about what particular architectures you're currently putting in place to establish these guardrails for these foundation models you're currently deploying? Like, uh, are you particularly like um, using any uh, packages or functions currently within that to be able to ensure that the Arco architecture like is moving well? And how is the service architecture designed? Yeah. Uh, so the architecture way that we choose is basically a hundred percent serverless architecture because we found out that <clears throat> one of the needs that we had to face was the capability to scale up and down very quickly and also to be able to compose uh, our uh, architecture with different models. Just let me, may, let me explain a bit more about that. Uh, usually when you put foundational models into works uh, in real use cases, 
uh, it is not enough to just use a standard input. So basically a direct prompt, send a prompt to bedrock and then get back to the results. Uh, usually it doesn't happen this way. Uh, this is due to the fact that uh, maybe in real, uh, real life use cases, you need to uh, do a bit of back and forth between you and the foundational model, between you and Bedrock, in order to get your result processed. Uh, let's step back to the uh, biopsy example. Uh, when I provide a, bios a biopsy document, basically I have a PDF of the document. So I need to upload that PDF somewhere, which is basically the easy part. Then that PDF needs to be processed. So it needs to be indexed at any time in any way. Uh, the information, the, te the written text needs to be extracted. And then I need to pre-process that text. So I need to extract from the text a brief summary about the, uh, the content of that biopsy. But on the other side, I need to process a knowledge base. And from that knowledge base, I need to extract related information. And then I need to pack them into the same uh, prompt. And after that, I need to use that prompt uh, to provide uh, a feedback to the doctor. So basically, in this very simple example, I'm using the foundational models almost three times. Uh, at, at least three times because I'm using the foundational model to summarize, uh, sorry, um, four times because I'm using the foundational model to understand the content on the biopsy. So I need to craft a prompt that says, uh, explain each one of the terms mentioned in that biopsy. Uh, then I use the foundational model to summarize. I cannot do the same thing. Uh, there is uh, a very nice paper uh, which is called React reasoning and acting uh, and I suggest uh, uh, you all to check it out if you haven't done before because it is a paper that explains that uh, uh, foundational models are really good into performing reasoning and understanding and detecting the kind of actions that you need to accomplish but you cannot do both in the same iteration because otherwise the models tend to derail so we can use the model to reason and to extract the information, then the model to act and summarize that information. After that, we need to use the model to retrieve information from an external knowledge base, maybe an authoritative knowledge base uh, dealing with medical information. And then we need to uh, craft them into a prompt and compose the prompt uh, to make the model, the foundational model generate uh, the outcome. So the suggested explanation to the doctor. So basically we are using a model four times. It is not affordable to do that uh, without a framework and without an architecture. So on the architectural side, we need something be, be, being able to be composable. <clears throat> and one of the most uh, uh, appreciated features of serverless that, uh, uh, that we experienced in this domain uh, was, uh, curiously, it was not uh, the scalability. So the, uh, the scalability was point number two. Point number one was composability. So the capability to uh, use, to think about serverless as a set of composable uh, mod uh, modules in which even your functions are something that can be used to compose different use cases. Uh, so flexibility at the end is something that uh, 
uh, it is uh, uh, really relevant in this domain. And uh, we appreciate it using CDK to compose the architecture, uh, but also uh, we evolved that into using CDK to provide a set of different functions implementing different uh, uh, units of computation, each one of them with its own uh, foundational model usage, and then uh, uh, using a technology such as step functions to, to coordinate that. At very first instance, it was uh, super fine. But after that, we found out that step function is good to process a state machine when uh, you have to deal with traditional computation. So you have to manage file uploads, you have to manage doctor approvals and so on and so forth. And it was super great. And we used that. Uh, but after that, we needed something more uh, to coordinate, orchestrate uh, the usage of the um, LLM part. So uh, when you are dealing with your uh, LLM within a single Lambda function, so basically we are using AWS Lambda as our computational unit, uh, even within the single Lambda function, you need to compose many different blocks and you need to invoke and use many different services. So the architecture of the CDK architecture is going to provide you the, the or modules that you need, but it is within the function that uh, you have to orchestrate them. And luckily to us, there is uh, an excellent framework, which is named LangChain, that provides uh, uh, all the support and all the abstraction that are needed to model uh, the, uh, the working with LLMs. So it provides uh, abstraction for memory, it provides extraction for prompts. It provides also the extraction from chains, where chains are predefined uh, composition of different uh, modules. Uh, LangChain is a framework that you can leverage either in Python or TypeScript. Uh, but my suggestion is to uh, check out the Python version because uh, it is uh, uh, the most up-to-date version. So uh, often, uh, new releases are released uh, in Python and then backported uh, to TypeScript. Uh, but if you, if you are comfortable with TypeScript as well, you can use LMs and you can use LangChain even with, uh, uh, with TypeScript. And the best part is that uh, you choose the abstraction model. So you say, I need a memory. You say, I need a prompt. And then you can use the right plugin to specialize that abstraction. So when we say we need a memory, we can easily switch from DynamoDB for storing conversation, because sometimes you need to have your doctor refine uh, the prompt. So, uh, so I suggested a message. So I provide a message and the doctor needs to uh, write back, okay, uh, make that shorter or avoid mentioning uh, that kind of, uh, of topic and the model needs to have a very short memory. So we are not doing a, a conversational chatbot, but we need to support the memory in order to um, keep a window of messages in order to let the doctor improve the quality of the outcome, uh, sending messages to the model. 
and uh, we can use so we need a component that is, is able to express memory <clears throat> and we found out that DynamoDB is uh, a good choice uh, other uh, pretty great choices that uh, can be considered when you, when you are uh, facing scalability and also when you are facing the need uh, to have uh, mm, to, to control your uh, throughput, uh, which can be tricky with DynamoDB to provision the right amount of throughput. And otherwise, if you use the on-demand option, uh, it could be uh, it, could, it could lead you to unpreventable uh, cost spikes. Uh, you can also choose uh, uh, to use a cache solution, and uh, you have plenty of caching options such as Elastic Cache and so on and so forth that are mapped using the memory abstraction, and that's pretty good. And even to process uh, uh, documents, even to process data, uh, you can use chains. Chains are predefined compositions of uh, of models. Uh, some of them using LLMs, <clears throat> and they are uh, excellent uh, to uh, say process a PDF into extracting and summarizing uh, the result of the, of the PDF. But more than that, you can use LangChain also to abstract away at some point uh, the model that you are using. Uh, just let me uh, super clear: you cannot abstract that away completely. Because when you deal with prompt engineering, uh, each model has different uh, uh, edge cases to manage. So crafting a prompt for a Titan is not the same thing as crafting a prompt for Claude, uh, which is different from crafting a prompt for uh, GPT-4, because you have to deal with nuances. Uh, which are different in, in each one, but you can basically improve a lot your m m prompt management using line chain, which can abstract away also the tedious, the uh, noisy part of uh, uh, being able to uh, call directly bedrock APIs, then manage the connection to that APIs, and blah blah blah. Uh, you can use the component and then you can provide your prompt and then your duty uh, it is about crafting the right prompt or maybe adapting the right prompt on the prompt side it uh, Langchain provides a lot of uh, capabilities related to string interpolation and being able to enhance and compose even complex prompts and more than that we found out that Langchain is also great to be extended uh, right now, we are extending Langchain uh, with a token counter. So we are writing a plugin, just a bit of a spoiler, but we plan to release that open source what, once that we have done. Uh, we are uh, crafting a plugin which will be able to count and uh, to keep count of the tokens that you are consuming and to store them in order to provide you <clears throat> a best way of, uh, to manage your uh, LLM usage bill uh, because uh, uh, since they are priced by uh, thousands of tokens uh, and the number of tokens tends to uh, be uh, very different from interaction to interaction because uh, it counts all the messages and all the previous messages that you have sent back and forth uh, 
uh, it could be a bit unpredictable uh, to find out uh, the right amount of tokens. So being able to keep track of them could be useful. And on the other side, we have been using Langchain uh, into to testing the model. And uh, but maybe it's something that we we will discuss in a bit when we are talking about how to check that how to keep the model in check. That's a really great case, Luca, and I think you touched on a lot of great points of the architecture really well. It's yeah, I feel like a lot of our listeners who are already using Bedrock definitely already had an encounter with Langchain. So I hope that's been working out well for you too. I've personally found it very good to work with and it's very flexible. A lot of things are already there. And like you mentioned, one of the most powerful things that it's able to do is it has the capability of maintaining context, which I feel like a lot of other libraries currently are still struggling with. So it's, it's a really great thing that you mentioned that. And one of the things you also touched on that I feel was resonated well with me too, was a bit about how different FMs currently also respond differently based on your prompts as well. I think that's a good point to touch on for our listeners as well, because I've experimented with a bit. And one of the things, for example, I was like finding out was that Amazon Titan had a more neutral way of looking at things and tried to stay as neutral as possible and objective as possible compared to a lot of other FMs, for example. And one of the ways that I was thinking about was how can I try to make it a bit more opinionated and be more creative, like say Claude, for example. So I think you touched on that very well too. Yeah. And it is, there is also something that uh, you should consider is that the size of the contents matters and uh, it doesn't matter only on the, uh, on the way, in the way that you, that everyone thought. So uh, shorter contexts is uh, shorter cost, uh, harder cost context constraints are worse than longer context support. Uh, because uh, uh, we recently find out, uh, so not with, but uh, the scientific world find out recently that uh, the model doesn't process the context, uh, uh, every part of the context in the same way. It is something uh, uh, astonishing, but if you think about the architecture of foundational models and the transformers architecture, it uh, becomes pretty clear. Basically, the problem is that longer contexts are not always better than shorter contexts. This is due to the fact that the model tends to focus more on the beginning and the end of the context and uh, provide less weight, less important uh, to the central part of the context. The thing that we found out almost empirically, and then uh, a paper came out, uh, say I think three weeks ago, uh, measuring that, is that the weight that the model provides to the beginning part or the end part of the context, it is far more relevant, far, far higher than the weight that it gives uh, uh, to the central part of the context. So if you are basically putting a lot of stuff into your, say, uh, 64Ks or 1000Ks uh, context, you are basically ignoring a lot of relevant part of your context because they are basically in the middle of the prompt, in the middle of the, of the context. Uh, this is uh, pretty clear if you consider that uh, the attention mechanism of the transformers tends to 
focus more on the relevant part of, uh, say, a text, which are basically at the beginning or at the end of the text. So it's something that is in this way by design, but prevents you into crafting a longer context, even if the models is able to support that. So Claude to, uh, is able to support uh, longer contexts, uh, a lot of other models, uh, uh, such as, uh, I think, uh, Coral from Courier uh, supports even longer context, which is pretty good because you need to pack all the back and forth with your model, but you need to consider that uh, while you are making your context longer, you are losing information. So you, you are losing focus on the middle part of the context. So you need to optimize also for that. Sometimes, even if your context lens support that, you need to summarize uh, some parts of your context and then fill that summary instead of using all the, uh, all the information, all the data that you have in order to keep the model more focused on your information. It is especially true when you deal with RAG, which is retrieval augmented generation, uh, and uh, where you tend to have in, within your uh, context uh, all the information that you retrieve from, a, from an external source. Right. And I think you touched on the next point that I was actually going to bring up, Luca, which is basically in regarding the RAG. RAG has been a big area that's been growing recently as well in regards to being able to act as a question answer source for a lot of documentation. And how have you been applying RAG as well? Like, have you been seeing like much of a, like a SOFA use case from it as well? Yeah. Uh, RAG is uh, a technique that has been used, uh, uh, I think, since... Uh, even before that uh, LLMs became so cool, <clears throat> because it is a technique that is uh, basically based on results from BERT and uh, distilled BERT and GPT-3, uh, which basically uses uh, a capability that these models have, uh, which is related to being able to uh, craft embeddings from the text. So basically it's not just only capability, but it is one of the mandatory parts of the working of the model. So every time that uh, a foundational model needs to process a text, <laughs> the first step of processing is translating that text into a numerical representation, into an array of number that maps uh, the semantic distance of each term from the others. Uh, and uh, this uh, array of numbers, it is called embeddings, and it is the real input to the model. But we found out that uh, this numerical representation of semantic meaning, it's also great for uh, searching a database. So we started building uh, a number of uh, uh, vector databases. If you look around, uh, you have uh, uh, plenty of that. So uh, pretty much every week, a new vector database is released. Oh, so just, just to point out, when I say we, uh, I refer to we as the uh, engineers, we as the data scientists, we as the collective uh, of people that are working on this on this model, not, not just me. Uh, I won't be able to uh, to build a vector database from scratch, uh, but we are likely to me uh, we have we have plenty of them. Uh, we have also solution within AWS such as 
open search, which is supporting uh, vector indexing. Then we have Momento. Then we have MongoDB, which is going uh, to support uh, uh, vector uh, uh, searching into the database. And we found out that uh, all of them are able to retrieve uh, data, which is semantically close uh, to the text that you sent as an input to the database. So basically the idea is I can encode all my knowledge base, say about uh, our use cases, we have uh, doctor knowledge bases, we have uh, uh, medications information, we have a lot of uh, information about supplements, we can encode that uh, using embeddings, then store this uh, large amount of information even much larger than any prompt uh, sites that we can craft and store that, sorry, store that into a vector database, then uh, we can use uh, the same technique uh, when we receive a question to encode the question and to extract information which is semantically close to the uh, input question. Then we can pack that information into the same prompt, into the same context, and then ask the model to use that knowledge uh, to craft an answer, to craft a specific information. Uh, a couple of minutes ago, I told you about uh, uh, the fact that when we process the medical result, we need also to look up for information related to a condition. So if the condition is, say, uh, some kind of uh, uh, medical surgery, maybe you are providing information about medical surgery, you need to look up <clears throat> into your knowledge base about what is what do you mean with that. Or if you need to provide information about, uh, say, about uh, uh, medications, uh, about drugs, you need to look up into a vast uh, knowledge base about them. And the way you can do that is using RIG, and then you can extract the very short bit of information that you need. So basically the closest one to the topic that you are discussing about, and you can fill that into the context in order to provide the model uh, all the knowledge, uh, basically a cherry pick of knowledge that is needed uh, to the model to uh, provide the right, the right information. And it is one of the most used techniques, and in my opinion, is something which is uh, quickly becoming a commodity. I've seen a lot of uh, out-of-the-box solution, out-of-the-box uh, libraries in just the last two months uh, trying to uh, provide the full end-to-end -end, uh, solution for RAG. Even line chains uh, has a lot of chains uh, focused on RAG. So it's something that is becoming the building block of any uh, LLM application uh, in the close future. And uh, it is one of the most powerful tools that we have in our tool bet uh, beside uh, newer techniques such as agents uh, that can shape the way we build uh, LLM applications. I think it's a really great thing that REG is becoming more and more looked at with the evolvement of Gen AI. 
I myself have been playing with a lot of RAGs recently as well for trying to put into my documentation base. And that's particularly like one of my use cases as well. So I think it's a very interesting thing that you brought up particularly with your own use case of that as well. And I think it just shows like how powerful it is to be used by any knowledge base really because of how it can eventually be able to just query things easily that way and save a lot of efficiency and uh, make a lot of efficiency by saving people time by actually from actually doing like that kind of search and letting Gen AI instead do it for you. And that technique combined with the technology we have from Gen AI right now is really a big thing that we have moving forward. And I'd like to move the conversation a bit now towards the regulatory side of things. So one of the things I always heard about with the medical industry is always regarding regulations because we have things regarding PII, we have stuff regarding how doctors should carry out certain procedures. I wanted your opinion as well. How are how are you um, how are you finding this treatment of PII and regulations particularly within the your industry and how is it affecting as well how you are carrying out uh, the your work with generative AI? Yeah, it's, it's a good point because uh, especially in healthcare, I, I think in, in almost every domain, but particularly in healthcare, <laughs> the regulation is uh, very strict. And I think that it is good because uh, when you are dealing with medical conditions, when you are dealing with people, uh, you cannot afford uh, to have uh, uh, so many errors, you cannot underestimate uh, uh, the um, the kind of issues that you can have. So uncertainty, which is something that could be intrinsically built in into foundational models, it is something that you cannot afford uh, to expose to patients. Uh, you have a couple of uh, uh, regulatory issues to deal with. Uh, the most, the easiest one uh, are related to reducting PIA. Uh, I think uh, I, I say the easiest because uh, uh, models, such kind of models are pretty good into detecting them. And uh, we are uh, just close to having a lot of solution related to PIA reducting. And uh, in many cases, uh, uh, information is is not uh, is not needed that information is not needed and it can reduct it even before sending the data to to the model sometimes it is not uh, uh, it is not uh, actionable and uh, this is the reason why you have to move further and uh, try to understand which uh, solution is good for you uh, let me be a bit clear on that. Uh, no one, except for cloud vendors, can afford to train and deploy uh, LLM. Someone can afford to de just deploy a pre-trained LLM, but even fine-tuning is going to require a huge amount of investment. Uh, this is the reason why I think that definitely uh, the cloud is the uh, the preferred solution, and it will be the preferred solution for many of us, pretty much everyone out there uh, will be able to use to leverage uh, foundational models uh, using directly 
a cloud vendor, a cloud provider. And being able to choose the right model, being able to choose uh, the right uh, uh, conditions that you can have in terms of uh, data management, data privacy, it is something that could be helpful because these models are going to process relevant data. But it is not enough because on uh, uh, an higher level, you also need to be sure to ensure that uh, your model is not misbehaving in the results that it is producing. And in this case, such as healthcare, uh, even an error of say 1% means that uh, uh, to one person uh, out of uh, 100 people, you are telling the wrong thing and the wrong thing could be harmful. So in my opinion, these tools are pretty good, but you cannot use them directly and expose them directly to people. You need to keep the human in the loop. The human in the loop, it is someone who can filter uh, your results, your LM results. It is, uh, he is someone that can improve the quality and prevent errors. So our idea is to make the human work easier, is to speed things up. You mentioned before that uh, uh, to doctors, it is quite difficult to keep up to date with uh, the, the large amount of data that they need to process. Uh, consider about uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, patient data. Usually a doctor uh, to provide a good decision doesn't need to uh, collect all this vast amount of data. If you go to a cardiologist, a cardiologist need just to understand a small subset of parameters. So it doesn't care that you, go, that you have gone to say uh, anchor surgery uh, two years before, or that uh, uh, your relatives have some kind of uh, uh, genetic illnesses or so on and so forth. Because to, the, to do their job, they just need to focus on a uh, few information. And we can provide this right amount of information, but we need always, we need always to have people in the loop. And more than that, we use people feedback uh, even to improve the behavior of the model. Uh, we have been successfully into building uh, chatbots that can be used to test chatbots. So uh, we have been successful into using GPT-4 to test a cloud chatbot. So the GPT-4 chatbot uh, had the duty, had the task uh, to try to trick the chatbot into misbehaving. And uh, we had the human judge the result and improve uh, and not improve directly the chatbot, but improve uh, the tester because improving the tester, it is uh, easier than uh, uh, the testing every edge case for the chatbot. So say, uh, if I, I am a doctor and say, okay, you uh, don't have to mention, say, you, have to, you don't have to mention cancer if a, if a patient doesn't have any clear diagnosis about cancer because it can be frightening. I can provide this specific instruction to the testing chatbot and it can generate a number of dialogue to the uh, chatbot that I want to test in order to make that misbehave and mention cancer uh, even what is not relevant, even with this is not true. 
So uh, keeping the human in the loop, uh, not, not only ensure that you are uh, sticking to the guardrails, but it also can improve the overall process. Definitely. I completely agree with your point of keeping the human in the loop because I've already lost how count of how many times I tried actually getting a particular putting in a particular prompt into chat gpt or bedrock like yeah whether it be claude or titan there's always going to be cases of hallucinations that's just like not going to be gone anytime soon and i feel that with you know the how many updates there are to the models it's going to continually become a big thing and continually become a thing that you should look out for so 100 percent on that and and yeah i agree that one of the best ways to see its limits and just test out how good the model is is really by doing some chaos engineering like you mentioned just try try to make it make mistakes and yeah i think that's a good note as well to our listeners too like try to see its limits and accordingly refine based on that but always keep the human in the loop as you mentioned yeah but that uh, and, and having and having uh human uh, provide feedbacks uh, to testing, uh, to ways of testing uh, the chatbots, to ways of testing uh, the prompts, uh, it is something relevant because we need uh, to build tools to test uh, chatbots. Because every time that uh, uh, an LLM it is retrained on a different set of knowledge, uh, its uh, balance can shift. Uh, I've seen countless papers uh, talking about how the accuracy of uh, GPT-4 changed from uh, the, during the last 12 months because basically it was retrained, it was fine-tuned, and every time that you uh, retrain a model or fine-tune a model, the accuracy changed. It could improve, it could improve on some fields, it could globally improve, but locally uh, be worse. Uh, because testing on a, on a complete different set of knowledge, it, it can be a bit tricky. And we found out that sometimes uh, locally on a specific domain, it gets worse. So having a chatbot that can be used to test and to craft uh, different edge cases and detect different edge cases and have uh, an expert, a domain expert able to judge if the answer is good enough uh, to be acceptable, is something that can be used from time to time to keep the model in check, uh, even when it uh, goes under retraining. Definitely. I think that's a really great point as well. But Luca, we're uh, a bit of out of time, but just like a close up. So I was wondering if you had any closing remarks you had to our listeners for uh, anyone who wants to explore further about gen AI usage within healthcare? Yeah, I think that's uh, one thing that is uh, uh, going to explode in the next uh, few months. Uh, it is all the agents topic, all the agents stuff, because I think that pretty everyone uh, have seen uh, the video about uh, Open Day, Open AI uh, Dev Day. Uh, when they presented agents, 
and i think that uh, this technology which is by the way uh supported by line chain uh even with different models so agents are nothing new to gpt4 it is a technology maybe gpt4 makes that uh, makes them easier to, to to be used but it is a technology that line chain support and i think it is something that could even uh improve further uh also the diagnosis capabilities of this stuff so uh, with agents you can provide the context you can provide the apis that are needed to the model uh, to interact with uh, uh, the environment. Maybe you can provide APIs for different knowledge bases, for different source of truth, and you can have the model follow that uh, React mechanism that we discussed before uh, in order to find out the best solution and then uh, craft down the steps to achieve that, uh, uh, that goal and then actionate them into building the goal and this could be super helpful uh, to to doctors because it could help them uh, to think out of the box to think about uh, uh, topics that uh, are not under their their field of expertise and maybe provide uh, different uh, different diagnosis i've read a paper a scientific paper published on nature a uh, couple of months ago, it was related to long COVID diagnosis, uh, which cannot be made by different by a set of um, uh, doctors visiting a patient, because the reason was that uh, it was a systemic diagnosis. So if you look just to the liver, just to the lungs, just to the heart, uh, it is quite difficult to diagnose long COVID and uh, every doctor was looking to their specific expertise, but once they used an LLM uh, to put all their knowledge within, uh, it came out with uh, a suggestion at, uh, to test for the uh, presence of specific uh, cytokinin uh, or EGA uh, within the, uh, the patient blood, and uh, it was the solution and uh, uh, it, so it is something that could dramatically change uh, the way we uh, we work we uh, with doctors and uh, it could dramatically improve in the near future so my suggestion is to start easily start uh, using prompts just to process data and to provide data summarization then uh, step up with RAG and then start testing with agents because it is a super powerful technology that I'm, I'm sure uh, it will be used uh, in the near future pretty everywhere. I feel that all those techniques will be very helpful to all our listeners, Luca. I think you really highlighted as well that it's it's just amazing sometimes like thinking about how Generative AI has been able to provide us insights that we might actually not think about before too. So it's definitely a very powerful tool that will continue building and developing. But again, I feel it's a good way to summarize it is it's always good to have it around, build architectures around it, but at the same time, never let it go completely autonomous, especially like an industrial like healthcare, because you never really know when it might give you the error or the wrong answer. and Basically, in industrial like healthcare, it can be really costly to make that one small mistake. But let's 
pretty much going to wrap up there. Uh, Luca, thank you so much for, again for your time today on the podcast episode and for sharing your expertise and experiences with all our listeners today. And I'm sure that our listeners have managed to take away some very valuable, very valuable insights from them. So as usual, uh, to listeners, if you want to stay up to date with Serval Sorcery, uh, has to offer, do follow the LinkedIn page at servils-sorcery or my LinkedIn at Rinaldi Gonosperto. And you can reach Luca at Twitter at Bianchi Luca or LinkedIn at Luca Bianchi Pavia. And again, thank you, Luca. Thank you again, folks. And we will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much for having me. It has been a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all. Bye.